On this podcast, we've talked about mentorship before and the importance of seeking coaching. However, sometimes there are people in our lives that are extremely persistent even when we aren't looking for it. So have you ever had someone who saw something in you that you didn't even see in yourself? This week's guest, Greg Moffitt, shares how he was tapped on the shoulder multiple times to become an administrator, the reasons he fought this idea, and the importance of breaking through doubt. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Greg, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Josh, thank you so much for the invitation. It is truly an honor to be here. I'm I'm humbled that you would ask, right? Like I, I haven't written a book. I, I don't host an awesome podcast like Aspire Leadership. I, I don't really have a blog. You know, <laughs> I I am a teacher that just gets to serve students and staff as a principal right now. And I'm a dad and a husband. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate the chance to talk about education. Oh, Greg, you have been an inspiration in my leadership journey, and that is why you're on the podcast. I've, I love having leaders that I have direct connection with, and we have been connected on social media for some time. And then also you're a part of this Aspire Boxer group, and I swear every single day you're on there, you provide value. And I just had to get you on the podcast because I want other people to hear your voice and all the wonderful things that you're doing. And with that, will you just share with the listeners what your educational leadership journey is? Yeah, I think I got into education maybe by mistake, maybe by accident. I, I didn't, um, I didn't even think that I wanted to to be a teacher. I I love school. I had a great time in school, and I had been involved in a whole bunch of leadership programs and organizations and student council and and done the whole leadership thing in school. And I I thought I was going to graduate high school and go off to college, and then. I was I was headed to Washington DC and I was going to go, you know, change the world in Washington DC and I thought I knew it all. I thought I was just going to go make a huge difference there and so I go off to college and I I start taking or trying to take political science classes mm-hmm. and the classes that I'm I'm, you know, trying to get into, I you know, or over-enrolled. And so I land in this public policy and education course, and there are required observations. Mm -hmm. And so we are lucky that our professor has lined up schools where we can go in and see public policy in action and happening. And we're able to talk with teachers and observe and ask questions and see what's going on. So this was back in the day when standards had kind of just come out and and folks were experimenting with pacing guides and district created pacing guides and and so we were going down to see if if there was any impact in that and so I, I just vividly remember going into um, a classroom and there it was it was a classroom in a school where kids tested to get into the school it was a public school and the kids were all you know gifted and talented gate identified and it was a ninth grade english class and, and they were they were acting out romeo and juliet they were having incredible discussions about it it i mean they went from the page to the stage and it was it was amazing and a few days later i was able to go and visit another ninth class um, at another school you know the school that all the other kids got to go to and and I walked in and, and the kids were watching the video version of Romeo and Juliet. And I thought, oh, maybe they finished the pacing guide, right? Maybe they got to the end of the unit. And um, I asked the teacher what was going on. And, and she said, oh, these kids can't read Romeo and Juliet. So they need to watch the video. 
and I was just taken aback. And I, I just, I, I couldn't believe that, that there were kids in the same school district, right, that were getting such different experiences. And I was young and I just thought I knew everything. And so I, I, I raced back to the, you know, college classroom and our seminar and I'm like, we've, we got to do something about this. We've got to change this. And I will never forget the professor, Professor Carl Kasel said, if you want to change a school, you better go work in a school. Mm-hmm. And that, that was eye-opening for me. So there was this complete pivot and shift from thinking I was going to go off to Washington, D.C. And, and, and do these incredible things to just pivoting to really thinking about the differences that I could make in schools. And so I started volunteering in classrooms. I started taking every single ed course that I could, and I just started learning. You know, once I graduated, I, I worked in a school and got my master's and then ended up here in California where, <laughs> you know, I've been working in schools ever since. And wow. and it was really that moment of seeing how how different schools could be for kids and for teachers. And and I think it's important to say that I, I don't blame the teacher for what she said, because those kids couldn't read Romeo and Juliet with the resources that that teacher had been given, with the resources that school had been given, sure. with all that had happened to get to that point in that moment in time for those kids. But it was a moment that got me thinking, you know, I want to be part of a group of educators, a team of educators that is trying to make schools better for kids and for staff. And so that's kind of how I got where I am today. Well, let's do a deep dive because I know that you were a teacher for some time and then, you know, you are now our principal. So was there a defining moment where you realized you wanted to become a leader or was there someone who came into your life and spoke some wisdom or <laughs> maybe it was craziness? I don't know, but uh, pushed you toward becoming an administrator? Yeah, I, I mean, I taught for eight years um, as a middle school teacher, and I also was able to serve as the student activities director at a small rural school. And and when you're in a rural school, right, you are you're kind of doing a little bit of everything. But oh, yeah. I felt like I had the best job. I got to to teach kids every single day about reading and writing and ancient civ and and leadership and do student activities and. And I, I thought, I was like, I, I'm set. This is great. And I remember being in the staff room after school and our principal came in and I was making photocopies on the RISA machine. My hands were covered in ink and the principal came over and she was working late and she said, when are you going to go take your admin test? And I was like, I'm, I don't, I'm not taking my admin test. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to, I got the best job already. And she's like, uh, you need to take your admin test. And a week later, I'm at the copy machine again. Friday night was always when I did my copyings because there was always a school dance Friday night that I had to chaperone. And so she comes in again and she's like, so I found someone who recently took their admin test and you need to go talk with her. So I've set up a meeting with you and her for next week and I'm going to cover your eighth period class so you can go and, and do that. And I'm like, stop, like <laughs> I'm not <laughs> taking my admin test. And she was persistent. She would not let go of that. And she saw something in me that I don't think I saw in myself. And she just kept saying, you're doing this. And, and actually, when the time came to for me to get my first admin job, she was the one that hired me as her assistant principal in another school. And, and yeah, I think all along the way, at so many points in my life, there has been someone that saw something in me that I didn't necessarily see and, and pushed and prodded and and maybe even shoved a little, like when I was hesitant and didn't want to do something that got me to where I am today. 
And, and I think, I think honestly, that, that really is the job of a leader is to see something in others that they may not see in themselves at that point, and to point that out and to celebrate the heck out of it and, and to be the one that, that pushes and supports people along the way. So yeah, Pam Sheline, she, she got me to where I am today. So was Pam someone that was a mentor toward you or was there someone else in your life that really challenged you and helped you in your leadership journey? Pam definitely is a incredible human and just someone that I admire as this educational leader. She is the epitome of what I see a principal as. She was nonstop, go-getter, positive, just amazing, cared about kids and cared about staff and making things happen. When I think about the, my leadership mentors along the way, um, I think of, I think of uh, the director of a leadership camp. His name is Dr. Jim Fitzgerald. You know, when all of my friends in high school were going to sports camps and outdoor adventure camps, I was the geek that went to leadership camp over the <laughs> summer. And, um, and it, it, you know, the name of the camp was the Student Leadership Training Program. Uh, so not original, but um, it was a program for student leaders from across the country, really. It was based in New England, but um, across the country to, to come and just learn about difference making and learn about how leadership is so not about a title or a position, but it's about action. It's about serving others and supporting others. It's about making positive change. And, and Jim was the director of the camp, founder and director of the camp. And he, he absolutely inspired me by his vision for, for teaching and for learning and for education. When I was starting my educational career and I was, I was in my graduate program and starting my student teaching, um, I was able to see Dr. Jim go and give a keynote speech to a group of teachers and, and staff members. And he was talking about how we often see that the, the purpose of school is to prepare kids for the real world, right? Like we go to school to prepare you for the real world or prepare you for what's next. And, and he stopped and he said, if that's all school is, we're doing it wrong. Because school in and of itself is real and our kids have real lives and they bring those lives to school and they are dealing with real things and real issues. So our job is not to prepare them for what's coming next. Our job is to support them in what's going on right now. And that just was a powerful, powerful statement for me um, to think about. And Jim actually took that idea of, of being real and turned it into an acronym that really sort of became my philosophy of education. So the R stands for relational. School has to be about building relationships and connections between students and students and students and staff and um, staff and parents and also students and the content that we're teaching. It is really about building relationships and connections. He talked about the importance of the R stands for experiential. So the experiences that we are creating for students each and every day in our schools, you know, we are in the business of making memories and making experiences for kids. And that was something that I, I took with me and tried to bring into my teaching. And now as a school administrator, um, A was for authentic. We have real world problems and issues going on and let's get kids engaged in those. You know, let's, let's get kids talking about real world situations and issues. And then L, learner centered, really making it about the students and putting them at the center of what we're doing. 
that philosophy just became something that I lived and breathed as a classroom teacher. And now as a school administrator, I, I really think deeply about each of those things. And I think about the lessons I learned from Jim all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. Mentorship is such a huge aspect of anyone's leadership journey. And if anyone is listening right now and does not have a mentor, please make sure you do that immediately. I think, Greg, you and I are very similar in our journeys in the sense that our mentors were key in our development. I love what you said there and what Dr. Jim had shared. Let's talk about your first years as an administrator, because I know usually a transition, you know, when you're we're young, we're lighting the world on fire, we're passionate, and with that, sometimes we make some mistakes. So did you have any trials and tribulations during your first years as an administrator? Every single day. Every <laughs> single day, I think I made a mistake or I just didn't know what I didn't know, right? And I was lucky that I was able to, to serve as the assistant principal at the school for two years prior to be being appointed to be the principal. Right. So I knew the staff, I knew the families, I knew the kids, I knew the rules and expectations because I'd been a part of setting them. But there is something really different about about the principalship, right? It is a, a different viewpoint of the school and there are different responsibilities. I think I got in my own way a little bit too much. I thought that, okay, this is, this is my time to lead with a capital L, right? And it is, I have to take on all this responsibility. And honestly, the times when I tried to do things myself, I was doing it wrong. And I think that is the biggest realization that I got that first year is that I might have a great idea. I might have an idea that I think is going to work for our, our students and staff, but I might be wrong. And if I don't get input, if I don't get feedback, if I don't bring others on board, I am going to be wrong. And so that, that first year as principal was really about learning how bring in the ideas of others. And, and even today, when I step in it, when I make a mistake, it is more often than not because I have been the only one doing it. I didn't ask for help. I didn't bring folks in. I just, I made it about me instead of about us. And so a lot of the lessons from my first year were really about learning to, to just rely on the team and to also empower and build the team too. And, and that, that I think was the greatest lesson from that first year in the principalship. Sure. And I know a lot of times it's difficult to work with staff, especially trying to get to maybe change some of their beliefs or tactics within the classroom. So did you have any struggles trying to work with your teachers? And were there some things that you learned through that process? Because, you know, some people have the mindset of do it my way or go out the door. And that's not really what administrators about and really trying to work with that teacher to, to better them. So were there some things that you learned through that process? I think the moment I realized that teachers don't need fixing, mm -hmm. that they need support, that was fundamentally the difference for me. And that it was not about me fixing anyone or even fixing the school. It, it really was about supporting the school and putting in putting supports in place. Mm -hmm. To, to do that. And so structures and, and systems that really get feedback for everyone. So folks really do feel that they have a, they have a voice in their school. 
when I first became an administrator, I arrogantly, naively thought like, oh my gosh, the teachers are going to be like my students, right? They're going to be like my classroom and I'm going to go and teach them all this great stuff that worked well in my classroom. And guess what? Teachers are not my students. They are not our students. They are adults. They are professionals. They have had experiences. And what worked in my classroom worked because of me and my relationships with my students. And yes, hopefully it worked because it was research-based and you know I was implementing good practices, but fundamentally it worked because of who I was in connection with the kids in my class and their needs, what I understood of the curriculum. Yep. And until I understood that, and until I understood that the teachers were not my students and our staff meetings, that was not my classroom. It was, it was really about empowering others, making sure everyone had a voice at the table and their expertise was valued. I'm still learning that, right? It's not like it's this perfect thing. And, and sometimes when there are challenges and problems, it's because I haven't gotten the feedback of others. And yes, I am in a leadership role. I do have a title of being the principal. And so some decisions I do get to make, some decisions I have to make. Yep. And I think it is being clear about the process that's going to lead to whatever decision. Is this something that we're going to get the consensus of everyone? Are we going to take the time to really go through and, and build that consensus? Is this a situation where we're going we're gonna to take what 60% of the staff agrees to and everyone else is going to follow along? Is this a time where I'm going to get feedback, but I'm, I'm going to make the decision? Mm -hmm. And I think being clear about what type of decision-making process we're going through has benefited a lot of those times when, when decisions have to be made and when you have the time to make those decisions. Yeah. Of course, there are emergency decisions and safety decisions that you just have to, on the spur of the moment, make a decision. But then you hope you're relying on all the feedback that you've gotten along the way from your teachers about what, what's going to be best in that moment for everyone. I want to talk about what you were speaking about with your mentor as far as the relational piece. And I know you're a big advocate for social emotional learning on your campus. And I just love your viewpoint. So what is it that you're working on now within your campus on social emotional learning? We are like many schools across the country right now. Um, school starting in a few days for us and we'll be starting in a few days for folks across the country. And we are trying to really think deeply about how we prioritize the social emotional needs of our kids as we go back in whatever, whatever situation we're able to go back in. And so whether it be a full virtual learning or a hybrid model or some form of face-to-face -face or when we get to full face-to-face, -face, whenever that can possibly and safely happen, we've all gone through a collective trauma right now. We have all gone through something unthinkable and it has affected everyone differently. You know, I often hear people talk about we're in the same boat. I think we're in the same storm, but all in different boats. Yep. And I think a lot of a lot of factors contribute to that. And it's really trying to to see where people are and to to value where they are and support them from where they are. And so we want to make sure that we have in our reopening plans, dedicated time to really support the social and emotional needs of our students. And that we also integrate that throughout whatever schedule we are able to come up with, because it's not a one and done thing, right? It's not like, oh, I had my social emotional learning time. 
in our morning meeting today, 15 minutes, check. And then we go, we have to be able to integrate that throughout the day. So I was lucky to be asked to, to co-chair a district-wide task force for the 13,000 kids in our school district. Um, and we have been meeting weekly this entire summer with mental health clinicians and school counselors and student deans and assistant principals and teachers and other administrators just to try to come up with a, a set of resources that we can share and ones that take a trauma responsive and culturally relevant standpoint. Yep. Really, we have to make sure that that we're not just focusing on, on character traits or on um, being kind to each other and nice to each other. Of course, that is so important, right? Kindness matters, being nice matters, but we've really got to take a, a bigger look, I think, at how we use these character traits, how we really identify the strengths that each individual holds and and use those strengths and use those those talents and use those skills to go and fundamentally make our schools and the world a better place. Yep. And I think that's what SEL is really about. And so I really look at those three letters, social emotional learning, as really being more about social emotional leadership. Yeah. And really saying, okay, what are the, the social skills and the emotional skills that are needed to really take our kids and, and transform them into leaders, um, to really make them feel empowered to go and, and make a difference? There are so many issues facing society right now, and we've been silent on them, I think, for too long, mm -hmm. and helping our kids find their voice and use their voice to make the world a better place is, is really, to me, what social emotional learning and leadership is all about. I think that's wonderful. I think what you just said as far as focusing on the strengths is something that needs to happen with the students, but I think that can also translate to your staff too. What is it that you're working with with social emotional learning for your teachers on your campus? That has, I think, been the biggest realization for me as I've done this SEL work at various campuses and and at the current one that I'm at, well, when schools first shut down, right? Mm -hmm. We were so focused on connecting with each of our kids and meeting the social and emotional needs of our students, right? We did the videos, we, you know, did the drive through, like we, we did it, right? We, we just wanted kids to know that we cared about them, that we connected with them. We did a family check-in, you know, using Google Forms where folks could tell us how their kids were doing and if they needed a personal phone call and we did it all. And we did it pretty quickly. You know, I got a, a phone call from a teacher late into the evening when, you know, we had posted our video for our students saying, we miss you and we hope you're doing well. And, and she was in tears. She was like, I just need you to know how, how lonely and isolating this is as an adult. Hmm. She was like, her kids were, were with their father and, and she, was, she was alone. And she was saying... I am going through this trauma of school being closed in a way that I didn't think was going to affect me in the way that it did, but, but it's, it's weighing on me. And so, I mean, that started then a, a staff check-in form, right? Where we yeah. sent out a, a staff check-in to see how staff were doing and did they need someone to give them a phone call? It started our staff, you know, virtual social half hours on Zoom. And it made sure that we were connecting that way to just find out what our staff needed. And that to me was just an amazing reminder that 
it's not just about supporting our students, but as as school leaders, as site leaders, as building leaders, we are we're supporting our staff and we are there for them as well. And and making sure that they're doing okay. That is something that we are trying to prioritize. Our SEL task force has amazing mental health um, therapists and clinicians on it. And they're putting together, you know, sort of a weekly mental health toolkit, right? Mm -hmm. That is going to go out to staff so that they can practice these skills, whether it be mindfulness or breathing or, you know, whether it be some sort of gratitude journaling or some sort of reminder to exercise. Our staff needs their, their toolkit and someone to think about them just like our students do. Yeah. So let's talk about another subject that is probably dear near to our hearts is the fact that not only do we support our students and our teachers, but we also need to support our families. And in administration, so many times we are away from home uh, for long periods of time. So how in your life, Greg, have you prioritized your family? Sometimes I've um, done it better than others. And sometimes I I am a complete um, jerk about it, right? Like I, <laughs> I, I have in many times in my life prioritized work or graduate school or other things way more than I should. And and really one of the reasons that I decided to leave the district where I was last year, um, which was a small rural district and come to a different one, was because I was spending so much time just focused on on work and trying to find even a semblance of balance was was something that I just needed to do. Yep. You know, I've often heard folks talk about it, and um, Jimmy Casas writes about this in Culturize. Yep. He talks about it's not so much balance, like there's no way you're going to find balance, right? Mm-hmm. It's about life fit. And at any given point, knowing how your work life and your family life and your spiritual life is all going to fit together. And I still think that, you know, family was that missing puzzle piece in my life for a long time. And so I have really tried hard to just put my phone down when I get home from work in, in another room, because if it's if it's buzzing near me, if it's like the lights lighting up near me, um, if I see that little red light saying I have a message, um, oh my gosh, like I'm like addicted to go and pick up the phone. So I need to put the phone away, really trying to limit when I'm on social media and saying, there's a thousand and one Twitter chats that I could be on and they're all amazing. And I've got to, I've got to limit it. I've, I've got to just make the time trying really hard to say, I'm not responding to emails, you know, in the evening after work hours, like there's no need to right? it can wait until the next day. So trying to set boundaries so that I can just be present with family and then also saying and knowing when I have to be present at work or when I have to be present somewhere else and just and just being being clear about that and being transparent about that because yeah at the end of the day family is what you got right yeah. and so we have to we have to make that the the priority and and really make sure that the leader that we are to our students and staff the principal, the educator that we are to our students and staff is the same person that we are at home, that our school doesn't get all of our energy and all of our good stuff. We are just as caring and compassionate and present and patient at home. And that's tough at the end of a long day as a principal when there have been many challenges. It's sometimes hard to just leave that in the car. Yeah. But but we've got to because 
my wife and my daughter and my dog, they didn't cause any of the problems that happened at school, right? They, they, they weren't there. They, they're not responsible for it. And right. so you have, to, you have to be present when you're home and when you're with your family. And I love those tragedies, Greg. And on this note, I just was talking with Taylor Armstrong, and we did an Aspire action step. And what that means is for our aspiring leaders or maybe our veteran leaders, if there's something that they can do tomorrow to enhance their leadership journey, what would you suggest? You know, I think to me, if you want to take your next step as a leader and see yourself as a leader, I think first you have to see yourself as a leader, right? So the first step is is to really just understand that you are a leader. If you are working in a school around humans, you are a leader because people are looking at you. They are watching you. You know, Ted Sizer and his wife, the, the great ed reform, you know, professor and school leader, he wrote, they wrote a book together called The, the Children Are Watching. Mm-hmm. They are watching. Our students are watching us. They are watching how we engage with them, how we respond to challenges and problems, how um, we respect and value their family, how we are excited about learning. Our students are watching us, right? So, so yeah, if you're in a school and students are watching, you are a leader. So I think the first action step is like, recognize that you are a leader. (laughs) Um, And maybe the second action step is then learn as much as you can identify what what you want to learn and go learn it, whether it be a podcast, a book, a webinar, finding a mentor and calling them, going and talking with someone, um, an article, whatever it might be. If you want to be a leader, one, realize that you are, and two, then learn about leadership. And I, I feel like that is the best action step. And then go do something with what you've learned, right? It's not just about reading all the books and listening to the wonderful podcasts. It's it's then, okay, I got this idea. I'm now going to go do something with it. I know that you told me one <laughs> thing, but it's, it's maybe it's three things. It's, yeah. you know, it's see yourself as a leader, go learn about it, and then go do something with what you've learned. So, Greg, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Twitter is probably the best way, at Greg underscore Moffitt. That's where you can find me. I spend way too much time there. So um, <laughs> if I don't get back to you in the evening, it's because uh, my phone is hopefully in another room and I'm yes. not looking at it. But um, I try really hard to respond to everything I'm tagged on and any direct message that comes my way. So um, Twitter is is where it's at, at Greg underscore Moffitt. And, and that's really where I get so much of my professional learning from. I realize there's like so many other platforms and teachers, you know, are in so many other spaces and finding great stuff. But Twitter just happens to be the one where I've landed and where I've connected with folks. So find me there. Yes, most definitely check out Greg on social media and on Twitter. He's amazing. I absolutely love talking with this guy. So you need to connect with him. He's going to enhance your leadership journey, I promise you. So Greg, it is such a joy to talk with you. Thank you so much for being on the Aspire podcast. Thanks, Joshua.